Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you are about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce Attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for this afternoon's discussion on H-1B caps and filing for fiscal year 2018. I'm, on, I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm, and I'm honored and delighted to introduce to you two of our brilliant Murthy Law Firm attorneys, Adam Rosen, who has been with the firm for over 12 years, and Alyssa Klein, who's been with the firm over eight years, um, doing a bunch of very complex different issues, primarily in the non-immigrant visa department. And as I was joking with them earlier today, with our combined experience, we have almost half a century of experience between the three of us. So we're not saying who's got more gray hair. Um, with that, um, we're all getting ready to wrap up for the cap season. And some of you who have been hearing this year after year or who have been doing H-1Bs for many years might think some of the information is a little bit uh, stuff, sort of information that you're familiar with. But again, sometimes it's important to go back to the basics. And for those who are newer in this area, it certainly provides helpful background and information. So as most of you know, the H-1B cap is an annual limitation on the number of new H-1B workers and the general quota cap is, as you know, set at 65,000 each fiscal year. The government fiscal year always starts on October 1st of each year and expires or gets over on the September 30th of each year. But even out of the 65,000, we have 58,500, which are available for the rest of the world because Chile and Singapore have a set aside of about 6,500 of those 65,000 cases. Then on top of the 65,000, we have the 20,000 additional slots for those who have completed a master's degree from a U.S. accredited nonprofit or public university. And I'm sure many of you have seen RFEs or denials on that issue. And then once the 20,000 master's cap is first used up, then those with the U.S. master's degree from the nonprofit or public university cap cases will slip and fall into the general quota for a second bite of the apple to be used to be counted against the 65,000 quota. As you know, the USCIS has been carefully scrutinizing whether the master's degree is from a for-profit or a nonprofit university. By mistake, if the USCIS had approved a petition under the master's quota for an individual with a master's degree from a for-profit university, then for at the time of future extensions, those same people who might have been in the U.S. for two years, three years, five years, or longer are now finding that their extensions are being denied. So it's very important that cases for individuals with a master's degree from for-profit universities are now being filed under the regular quota and do not mark them under the master's quota because, again, you'll be triggering a red 
red flag in that, that case. So with that overview and background, I'm going to go to Adam, to you, to go over and answer questions about when should H-1B employers consider starting the work and filing H-1 petitions, and how should this timing work? Okay, great question, Sheila. So the work should get started now. Now is a perfect time because the cap numbers become available at the beginning of the U.S. government's fiscal year. The next fiscal year, which is fiscal year 2018, starts on October 1st, 2017. And the earliest H-1B start date you can request on a cap case is a petition filed in the beginning of April for October 1st, 2017. However, cases can only be filed six months in advance of the requested start date. So that means even if the petition is approved before October 1st, a cap subject petition will not have a validity date that starts before October 1st. And so the earliest date that you can file a case is April 1st of 2017, again for October 1st of 2017. Thank you, Adam. Okay, another preliminary sort of question, Alyssa. A lot of people think, well, maybe I'm cap exempt, maybe I'm cap subject. So who exactly would be subject to this 65,000 plus 20,000? Now, another excellent question, Sheila. Um, it's a beneficiary who's never had H-1B is generally going to be subject to the cap. So it's actually a little easier to talk about the limited population that may not be subject to this quote to this quota. Um, for example, a person who was counted under the cap but in the past but was outside the U.S. for at least one continuous year can choose to be counted under the cap again and get a new full six years. Alternatively, if they don't want to deal with a lottery, they can go ahead and choose to use the remainder of their initial six years that they haven't used up. Um, another person who would be cap exempt would be a physician who's obtained J-1 waiver through the Conrad IGA program. Um, and in addition to individuals being cap exempt, some employers are cap exempt. And so even if somebody who hasn't been counted under the cap, if they work for this sort of employer, they are ca the, the petition is cap exempt. And this would be employment at and by universities and their nonprofit affiliates, as well as nonprofit and government research organizations. Um, but, you know, it's really important to talk to an attorney to make sure that you identify whether or not this particular type of employer really qualifies as cap exempt and to do that in time to file a cap case if you need to. So it's not just any nonprofit employer, it's a nonprofit government or a nonprofit research organization or can it be any nonprofit? Not any nonprofit, no, good point. The nonprofits need to be primarily engaged in basic and applied basic and or applied research. So they're research based organizations. Okay. So then the next issue that we're often asked about here at the Murthy Law Firm is what is required in order to qualify for the H-1B? And again, we're going back to the fundamentals because it's important to understand that in the definition, in the statute, which is the black letter law, is that an H-1B, as you know, is a specialty occupation position. And the definition for that is that the position itself must require a bachelor's or a higher degree or the equivalent in the specific field as the minimum to enter the position. The foreign national candidate must possess that required education or its equivalent at the time of filing the petition. So it can't be I'm going to graduate by June, I'm filing in April, 
I haven't finished my coursework on April 1st. Sorry, you don't qualify, but you need to have at least completed 100% of the coursework, and there's criteria. However, the fact that the beneficiary has a bachelor's degree or higher does not make the position in and of itself a specialty occupation because the job duties must be sufficiently complex and require the bachelor's in this specific field. So also if the position requires a bachelor's degree in any field, then it is not a specialty occupation. And that's one of the reasons the USCIS will routinely deny H-1Bs for maybe a bachelor's degree in business administration or finance or marketing saying that's too generic. So it must require a degree in the specific field related to the job duties which are to be performed. And if the beneficiary or the foreign national employee does not have the actual physical degree at the time of the filing, then the person needs to have obtain a letter from the university's registrar or the dean of the university confirming that the candidate has completed all of the requirements for the degree and that the person is merely awaiting the physical degree in the hand. So that's, again, the overview of H-1B qualifications or criteria. Now, Adam, coming back, if I can, to you, what we talked about the time frame, but what should an H-1B employer start preparing, getting together the information, the documents, in order to prepare and file a good case? So it is vital to plan ahead because there is no way to know when the cap numbers will be depleted. And so as you know, the system that's been in place for several years now uh, and the system that will be used for um, the coming fiscal year um, allows you to file the H-1B cap case within the first five business days of April. So it is not that um, the case has to be filed on April 1st itself. Um, in, in fiscal year 2017, the numbers ran out in the first five business days of, of April 2016. Um, when USCIS gets more petitions than are, there are available visas, whether that's for the master's numbers or for the regular bachelor's numbers, it employs a random selection process that we commonly refer to as lottery in order to select the positions available um, for, the, for the visas. They first pick the 20,000 for the master's and excuse me, under the mat, for cases that are in the master's, they first look at them for the 20,000 that are allocated for the master's degree. And then if the 20,000 are used up, then they go to the, the, the bachelor's degree and they will put together the regular cap petitions and the, the master's cap petitions. So it is important because of this reason, because there's a deadline when the cases have to be filed within and there is this heightened competition, it is important to start planning now in order to have your case ready to file at the beginning of April. Okay. Right, and just to pick up from that, it, it's important to keep in mind that the labor certification application, one of the critical steps in preparing an H-1B petition, can take up to seven business days to be certified by the Department of Labor. Okay, So because of that, you really should initiate the case as early as possible. Um, historically, there have been delays or technical glitches on the Department of Labor's ICERT system, their online system for processing LCA. So as people pick up uh, their preparation, you're going to see a higher volume of usage of the system, and that can sometimes trigger some problems. So the later the case is started, the more likely you run a risk of perhaps getting caught up in some of these delays and not having an LCA done in time to file the CAP subject petition. Thank you, Alyssa, for that information. 
So in, in taking off of what you were saying, Alyssa, the other point to keep in mind is that USCIS does subject the H-1Bs to uh, a great deal of scrutiny. And this is, as many of you may already know from previous years of filing H-1B cap cases, is true in situations where a worker is assigned to a third-party location. So to, um, to have the best chance of success, it is important to be aware of the kinds of documents that immigration is going to be looking for in making a decision on whether to approve your cap case or not. In preparing your cap case, you certainly want to work on getting the documentation in order to show the eligibility. But given that the USCIS may not always isn't necessarily going to accept every single cap case that you do file with them, the absence of some of that documentation may not prevent you, may not necessarily be preventing you from actually filing the cap case. The important thing to keep in mind in preparing those cases is to make sure that you're aware of what the requirements are and be aware that there's, you know, if the case is accepted, you're definitely going to have to make sure to ha be able to provide that documentation. And here at the Murthy Law Firm, we keep up on what the latest policy and adjudication trends are at USCIS, and we're experienced with he helping employers deal with those issues and address them, whether it is at the filing of the petition or in response to an RFE for those cases that do get accepted. Absolutely. And I know both Adam and Alyssa and our team may be more modest about their incredible knowledge um, on nuances and issues that I would say 99% of law firms and lawyers may not be able to pick up on. Clearly, they are very, very knowledgeable and experienced in looking at a myriad of complex issues. Peep cases come to us sometimes ideally, preferably at the time of filing so that we can plan and do a very rock-solid case. But sometimes people come after it's a little late or think it's too late, and we've still tried to resuscitate cases that really should and could have been dead because of improper, incomplete, or incorrect filing, sometimes when it's done in-house or by less experienced or less knowledgeable attorneys. So there are always more modest, but I can toot the horn of my incredibly brilliant team here at the Murthy Law Firm. So thank you both for your, uh, con you know, constantly keeping an eye out to protect and take care of all of the H-1B employers uh, with respect to complex H-1B issues. Okay, so let's get to the next big issue, which is can an employee, will the H-1B beneficiary be able to change the status within the United States itself to an H-1B? What if the optional practical training, the F-1 OPT is expiring, you know, in the summer, well before the October 1st start date of the H-1 petition. How does that work? And Alyssa, can I come to you now? Absolutely. So the answer is yes, somebody can change their status to H-1B while remaining in the U.S. Um, so long as their H-1B petition requests an October 1st start date and provided that they maintain their existing non-immigrant status through September 30th. So there can't be any breaks between the, the current classification and the requested H-1 classification. It's a little different for F-1 status, though. If the H-1B beneficiary or student's F-1 status um, or their OPT work authorization ends prior to September 30th, 2017, they still may be eligible uh, to stay here for the change of status. There is a cap gap extension, um, which goes through September 30th. And there are four conditions that have to be met 
um, to get the benefit of the cap gap extension. Um, that is that the petition is filed before the expiration of the OPT or the end of their 60 day grace period, um, that the change of status is requested on the petition itself on the form I-129, that you request an October 1st start date in the filing, and for ultimately that the case is, case is approved. Um, now, the cap gap extension starts when the student's current period of F-1 status ends regardless of whether they're in OPT or, or in their grace period. Um, if the student is in OPT at the time of filing the petition, then the OPT work authorization will also continue through September 30th. So the CAPGAP is an extension of their work authorization program. If the student is not in OPT or if the petition is filed during the grace period, they can still stay here until October 1st, but they cannot work after the, they cannot work until their H1 kicks in on that date. So the person who's F1 or F1 OPT has expired before, well before the time frame. Uh, before, say three or four months earlier, that person obviously cannot then take advantage of this. If the person is filing, say, in the first week of April, like Adam was discussing with the time frame, and their OPT work authorization expires some point after the filing but before October 1st, they may be able to get CAPGAP if their case is selected and approved and, and stay here and work for that whole time. Okay. And similarly, if their status expired four months earlier, let's say November or December, tough luck, you're Travel, not going to get, yeah. you're going to have to travel abroad and you can't work the entire time. Okay. But, and I'll jump in here, if the petition is rejected or denied, then the cap gap extension will terminate. If the petition is still pending after September 30th, then the student is in a period of authorized stay. So whether they've got cap gap work authorization or they just have CAPGAP permission to stay here and not work because, in our example, the petition was filed during the 60-day grace period. Once September 30th passes, the, they can, that person can stay in the United States, but that person cannot work. The CAPGAP work authorization, this is the key thing to remember, is that the CAPGAP work authorization ends on September 30th. If the petition is still pending and um, we've talked about this previously and we've put stuff out on Murthy Bulletin, that premium processing, there's no need to file the I-907 because your case is a, uh, is a cap case either way. You can always add premium processing. Uh, the, um, the, if the case is still pending because your case is in regular processing, that doesn't mean you have work authorization after, October, after September 30th. It ends with September 30th, assuming, again, you're filing before your OPT expires. Now, let's say you have the cap gap. In order to get proof of the CAPGAP extension, the student has to contact the school's DSO and request an updated I-20. This is the student's responsibility. This is not the DSO's responsibility. So if you want to have that proof, you need to contact the DSO. The, the DSO is not going to contact you. Now, CVIS, which is the, um, the computer system that the DSOs use to um, keep track of a student status and that will get updated um, with the change of status and processing by USCIS, Steve strongly recommends that students do not travel outside the United States during the cap gap extension. USCIS will consider the change of status request to be abandoned if the beneficiary leaves the U.S. while the application is pending. If the student travels outside the U.S. during the cap gap period, it is recommended that they wait to return pursuant to H-1B to resume employment on October 1st and this would be, so for example, if you have a period of the H-1B petition approved, but, and so you're not abandoning the pending change of status, Stevis is still recommending that you not travel 
because you're relying on just the cap gap, which gives you permission to stay, you're not necessarily going to be able to get back in with an I, even if the I-20 says cap gap, because that allows you to stay, it doesn't necessarily allow you to come back into the United States. Okay. So this is all really great for F1, for F1 but it's different yes. if they're not in F1 status. So if your H-1B candidate is not in F1 status and their current status ends prior to October 1st, um, and they cannot get an extension of their status through September 30th, then that particular candidate, that beneficiary, is not going to be eligible for a change of status to H-1B in the U.S. So in this case, the petition would have to be prepared for consular processing, meaning the person is going to have to, after the case is approved, go and obtain an H-1B visa from a U.S. consulate. Okay. Yeah, they check off the consular notification mm-hmm. section on the petition. Exactly. Okay. So... Um, Jumping to, can we jump to the next issue, the F-1 fees? I know people ask, the fees have changed. The government seems to constantly, employers, H-1B employers feel they're being gouged. Um, The fees constantly increase. The service is not necessarily any better. And it keeps coming back to, if you don't pay the premium processing fees, it can take three, six, eight months, sometimes longer even though the work authorization is only allowed for 240 days. So anyway, let's go through the five fees, and you'll know why most employers get really upset, but it's you're caught between a rock and a hard place. So the basic, the base filing fee has increased now, and currently it is at $460. Plus, there's a $500 anti-fraud fee, which both of which should be paid, rec- strongly recommend to be paid directly by the employer, The anti-fraud fee is usually paid for the initial filing and the first extension. Um, The $750 or the $1,500 training fee, that has to be paid by the employer. Depends on the, it's $750 for smaller employers with 25 or fewer employees and $1,500 for everybody else. $4,000 border protection fee, which must be again paid by the employer if the employer has 50 or more employees and more than 50% of the employees are on H-1B and or L-1A or L-1B combined. So that's the H-1 or L-1 dependent employers that have this penalty fee of $4,000. Also, employers could be exempt from some or uh, some of the f- the fees when filing subsequent H-1 extensions for the same employee. You then have that optional, what I talked about, the 1225 premium processing fee that I often refer to as the legal bribe for incompetent service of the government because they don't do the job that we're supposed to do in 30, 60, or 90 days. And now you need an answer for whatever reason you now have to legally pay this premium processing fee to get an answer uh, within the 15 working days. It's a way to obtain the decision faster, but it does not provide any kind of an advantage in the cap situation. It also does not permit an employment start date before October 1st for cap subject cases. And if the case is filed without premium processing, a case can always later on be within quotes upgraded 
once the receipt notice has been issued. If I could just jump in for one thing, especially for our listeners who have not uh, done an H-1B cap case before, or maybe this is your first time encountering the H-1B process, the one thing about the fees to keep in mind, and there are a lot of them, if the case is rejected, meaning it's not accepted in the cap by the immigration service, whether that's the master's or the bachelor's, the entire petition is rejected with all the fee checks. So all of these fee checks that you're writing to the government, they don't actually cash the checks unless they will accept the case in either the bachelor's or the master's cap. So it's if you're filing an H-1 case and it, you're concerned it's going to get rejected and you know, you've paid an attorney for to prepare the case, the and then you're also paying fees to the government, um, the government filing fees don't get cashed again unless until it gets accepted. So if it does get rejected, you will get those checks back and the money won't on the fees it, won't have been Sure, spent. absolutely, 100% correct, Adam, except that a lot of people use the term rejected and denied interchangeably. So just to be very clear, if your case gets denied after it's accepted for processing, the government will pocket the fees and you will not get a dime of it back. On the other hand, if they do not accept the case for processing, which is the rejection that Adam is referring to, where the government returns the case because they don't accept it for processing, then you will get your legal filing fees back, not the legal processing and other costs in terms of whether you hire an attorney or what have you. Okay, so now let's move to the next really, really big issue because there are some really common problems which are encountered particularly by IT consulting companies or other consulting companies with respect to their H-1 petitions. The three most common issues that we're seeing are the employer-employee relationship, the work location, and the end client documents showing that a bona fide specialty uh, that there's a bona fide specialty occupation, the right of control, all of those issues connected with employer-employee relationship. We will also tell you that we've been having a robust discussion within the Murthy Law Firm, as I guess and suspect many of you as employers are having on a regular basis, about whether you want to file a comprehensive petition with such extensive detail as to try to minimize or avoid an H-1B RFE, or whether to take a chance, file a legally complete and sufficient petition without getting into every nuance, because a lot of times you do have issues or problems in showing client or projects for the next three full years, which is the maximum time frame one can request on an H-1 petition. And so you decide, you know what, I'm just going to file the petition and then wait for the RFE. And those are very good questions. And in fact, we're uh, planning to maybe change or tweak our policy internally at the multi-law firm to accept the realities of the way the government's looking at these cases. So with that, if I can have uh, the first issue discussing the employer-employee relationship, and Adam, if I can have you get started. Sure, Sheila. So as we've discussed in other teleconferences, the Immigration Service has effectively altered the adjudication standards in the January 8th, 2010 memo and while it's been it's almost 10 years now it still seems like only yesterday that this changed but this memo requires that employers show the right to control its h1b employees it, it it's only ha- seven years though only it, and so essentially what they're looking for they're looking to see that the um they're saying that merely hiring firing paying and providing benefits will not necessarily be enough to show that the employer has the right to exercise 
their control. The employer needs to show that they have the right to control the, the manner and means by which the work is being done by the employee and that this control will continue for the entire H-1 duration requested in the petition. And so the language that we see in the, in the memo and that, has, that we've seen over the years in our fees is that the immigration service wants to see that the employer has this right to exercise control over the way the work is being done and that the work is being done at the, the work location where that person will be placed. So um, the, the, the tricky thing is, is how do you document this? Alyssa, do you want to talk to that? Absolutely. So in that initial memorandum, there was a whole long list of different factors that could be considered in determining employer-employee relationship. And the when an employee is placed at a third-party location, this is specifically of concern. But some of the factors that they talk about are whether the petitioner or the employer has the right to assign additional duties to the employee, the extent of the employer's or H-1B petitioner's discretion over when and how long the employee will work, and also who provides the instrumentalities and tools for that employee to perform the job. And there's another such factor, which is payment of wages. But USCIS has continually and repeatedly said that the payment of wages, who's actually paying the individual employee is the least important factor. Um, and as Sheila, as you mentioned before, you know, you can provide documents of this up front, which may help avoid an RFE, but you certainly should have the opportunity to present these documents in response to a request for evidence as well. Okay. Very good. Thank you. So with that, we've kind of tried to touch upon this big hot topic of employer-employee relationship, which they seem to love asking for in RFEs. The second hot issue is the work location. As we know, the USCIS continues to request that all the actual work sites be identified at the time of filing the H-1B petition. If the employee will be working at more than one work location, for example, the home office and the client's location, and the employer is also required to provide a detailed itinerary with the petition of the different time frames and work location which can be quite challenging, especially in the IT consulting industry. So with respect to the LCS, can that pose a problem, Adam? It can be a problem, Sheila. It is, it's necessary, not just important, it's necessary for there to be an LCA certified for each work location at the time of filing the H-1B petition. And you can certify an LCA. You can file the LCA and have it certified for multiple locations in one LCA if that's what's going to happen. So if there is a, a client that the worker is going to be placed at and the person's also going to be able to work for their home office, then the LCA does need to be certified for both of those locations. There's no exemption for a home office to not have an LCA. And so this information about um, the work location is, uh, is so important that you can't submit a new LCA to change the location at um, the time you get a request for evidence. The immigration service is looking, as the law requires, that you tell them at the time of filing the petition where the work is going to happen and that you have an LCA for that. As a result of this requirement and in connection with it, that's where the immigration service is going to be doing their site visits. USCIS has continued to do site visits over the years. They started with just H's and they expanded them to L's. The, the work location that they're doing the site visits for are going to be what's indicated on the I-129 form, which is also why having a person's home address on the I-129 on the LCA is important because 
if they're doing a site visit to someplace where that individual is never working, that creates a problem. And which is the case, uh, Alyssa, of what that they talk about. I know we keep talking about the matter of Simeo Solutions um, repeatedly. Right. So what Simeo Solutions made very clear was that an LCA alone is not sufficient to move someone and that you do have to file the amended petition because, as Adam you know, was discussing, we have all these site visits. And USCIS site visits are based on the Form I-129, which is filed to USCIS. They're not able to go into the Department of Labor's database and, and know where someone may be. Um, so the amended petitions are very important to make sure that if there is a site visit, that they're able to locate your employee. Okay, so that's the issue. So you're saying that under no circumstance, when there's a change of work location, that it cannot be submitted in response to the RFE, which kind of again dovetails and matches. Right. I think you have a f- you think you have the exception for the LCA that may otherwise still be valid. If, for example, you have an employer who has an H-1B employee working at their office and they decide to move their offices, say, a mile down the road, as long as you comply with the DOL requirements to keep that LCA valid by posting timely, yes, if there was a site visit, you should be able to respond provided nothing else has changed. It gets a little trickier if the geographic area is still covered by the LCA, but your end client has changed. So that's still a little less clear. But I think in the past, what we've seen is that USCIS still thinks you need an amended petition if there's a new end client, even if the LCA is the same area. Hmm. Okay, so that's the third issue, the end client documents showing a bona fide specialty occupation. And so if the H-1B worker will be working on specific client projects, then there needs to be evidence of the projects in the form of contracts, POs or purchase orders or SOWs, statements of work, and a letter from the end client. Um, Also, if there are mid-vendors involved, then all of the contractual documents relating to the mid-vendors ideally should be allowed to be submitted. Right. And that's a very good point, Sheila. USCIS continues to want to see end client contracts and end client letters to verify that a petitioner has the specialty occupation work available for the beneficiary for the entire period being requested. So if a petition is filed asking for a three-year period, the end client should be able to verify in its letter or contract that the employee's project will last for that three-year period. Immigration is also looking to see this information in the contracts from the mid-vendor, the other, the other vendors that connect the end client to the petitioner. And without a contract or a letter, USCIS may deny the petition or approve it for a duration that's shorter than what's being requested in that H-1B petition. The, the, the question is, when do you provide that documentation? Do you make the effort to include it in your petition when you file it at the beginning of April? Or do you wait until later? Alyssa? No, I mean, that's a great point because we all know it's very difficult to obtain documents such as end client contracts or end client letters, especially if your employee is not at that project yet. Um, So again, these are documents which you should be able to respond to um, an RFE with, um, even if you don't have them up front at the fi- at the time of filing, um, there are some end clients or vendors you know who simply you know you know are hesitant or have a policy um, about providing these documents. 
I know that here at Murthy Law Firm, we work with our clients to try and help them get these documents. Uh, we're, we're willing, you know, to speak with the vendor or the end clients, you know, to provide, you know, any explanation, you know, needed. And sometimes that can be a big benefit rather than you as the H-1B employer asking, saying, well, I'm okay, but my attorney says this is a better way, stronger petition to submit if that's the strategy we right. want to follow is getting all the information up front. And the other thing, too, is that, you know, if we have an open dialogue about the client and the vendor and what their concerns are, a lot of times, you know, we can work to come up with a solution to see, hey, what can we get? What is mm-hmm. available? Maybe it's not your typical client lender, but maybe there's something else we can provide. So we can work on alternative documentation as well. Mm-hmm. So demonstrating the the employment for the H-1B worker, the specialty occupation employment, for the in, the duration, the entire period that you're requesting is very important. And what immigration is typically looking for, they're looking for contracts or a purchase order or a statement of work that identifies the duration for the work, letters from the contractual parties, the end client, the mid-vendor, or other vendors that are in this chain to verify the duration of the work and the need for the employee services, the the type of responsibilities being performed, uh, project plans or project timelines. There are other internal documentation which would show a timeline and show how long the work is expected to last are the kinds of documentation that immigration is typically looking for when they're looking at an H-1B petition or issuing an RFE. However, we understand that sometimes those things are not always available. So, Alyssa, can you talk about what what we do in those situations? Right. If the, you know, POs and the SOWs, the contracts, the, the letters are not available, um, like I said before, we try and work on alternative evidence? Are there some email verifications that we can get? Um, is there secondary evidence just showing that what the person is doing, you know, at that client project? Because what they're trying to understand is, is your employee doing the work that you're describing? Um, now, with that in mind, when you're using alternative documents, um, or if you have short duration purchase orders or something like that, you may still be able to get the approval, but you may end up with an approval for a year or some other shorter duration. You're not always going to get that three-year validity period. Thank you so much, Alyssa. Thank you, Adam. As always, we're very cognizant of the time that we try to wrap up these monthly teleconferences because everybody has deadlines. And I see we're right about at 40 minutes. So with that, uh, I want to briefly touch upon the rumors that are floating, because there's a lot of things going on at Flux with President Trump having signed three executive orders just in the past week, in, the, in his first week in office as the U.S. president dealing with immigration. Uh, most of them don't do not deal with H-1B-related issues. The first one was, of course, about interior enforcement-related issues. The second executive order dealt with building of the wall. And the third one talked about preventing refugees and citizens or nationals of certain countries, the seven predominantly Muslim countries that all of us have been hearing about in the news. Um, the concern, I guess, with that is whether those seven countries will be expanded to other countries to possibly rumors are flying about including countries like Pakistan and Afghanistan. And there was even question whether India could be included. Seems unlikely, but India does have the second highest number of Muslims in the world in terms of sheer numbers, not in terms of percentage of the population. And so n- n- nobody knows anything for sure. 
the rumors about how this will impact a potential executive order on H-1B employers is up in the air. There have been preliminary releases that some of these H-1B executive orders will require uh, the ICE agents and investigating L-1 employers or going into companies to study how H-1B employees are affecting, adversely affecting the wages and working conditions for U.S. workers. But it's a lot of studies and recommendations and proposals for request in the preliminarily leaked executive order dealing with H-1B workers. In the long run, Ultimately, something is going to happen with all of that. The bill that was introduced in the U.S. House of Representatives by Zoe Logfrin, uh, suggesting the increase in cap to be for H-1B dependent employers to increase the wage from sixty thousand to one hundred and thirty thousand, is of course just a bill. It's not the law yet, and she's doing that to try to impress upon both parties to pass a uniform bill. But all of that at this time is clearly up in the air. There's too much going on, and that's in the flux. And once anything is more concrete, we will be sharing it via a teleconference for employers and for the public, depending on whom it's going to impact the most. I know that does not give you the clarity that you seek, but there is no clarity with things having just been released and everybody trying to figure out what may or may not happen for H-1B employers and employees in the long run. With that said, let me try to wrap up. And on behalf of Adam Rosen, Alyssa Klein, myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you for joining us for today's teleconference on the H-1B cap cases for fiscal year 2018. And we hope to continue to help you and your company and your business as you navigate in these very troubled waters and troubled times. You might as well have the best immigration law firm in the world on your team, guiding you, protecting you, and helping you, and fighting for justice on your behalf. Thank you, and we look forward to helping you soon. Have a great day.